How do you feel about that, this intersection, this new audience, That's for very what good. you're doing? It's very good, because I believe that, uh, um, how could they say, that uh, what we do should be able to speak to everyone, mm-hmm. should be able to speak to different contexts. Mm. So it is important to find a way to express mm. ideas. If ideas cannot be translated to different uh, people, different contexts, ideas are not that good. Mm. A good idea can be, can be explained to everyone. Yeah. Are there ways in which you feel challenged by questions from this kind of a community, like questions from people that are coming from more of a spiritual perspective? Well, I'm used to being challenged by questions because I am uh, developing a quite original uh, view Mm -hmm. and therefore I always have the feeling that most of the people feel threatened by my view Mm. because it kind of um, set aside most of the assumptions that people have about themselves and the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty used to the fact that usually people challenge my, my, my view. Yeah. I'm surprised when that doesn't happen. When it doesn't happen. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it seems like in this context, people are sort of eager for new ways of looking at these ideas. So maybe this is even more of an open-minded environment than the kind of orthodox physics. Do you find that to be the case? or? Well, every um, environment has its own orthodoxy. Right. In a way, of course, and uh, even the non-dual, even the non-dual have their own uh, um, ground rules, so yeah. to speak, which may be in a way broader than other environment and other places, but they have them. Yeah, one of them might be, and I and I appreciated this about your work and what you kind of. Um, offer is that one of those orthodoxies, at least here, we might say, is the idea that everything is consciousness. Every, every, the primordial thing is not matter, it's consciousness. And you, and you said yesterday in your talk um, that I was fortunate enough to attend that, that actually you're going you're gonna to offer something different than that here and maybe it'll be a little provocative for those that are, that are going to start from consciousness because you're starting from the physical. Mm-hmm. But of course, as we know, um, the, the physical to you is much more nuanced than, than the, the more, um, I guess, you know, status quo understanding of what the physical is. So do you want to talk a little bit about what the physical is um, from a kind of orthodox standpoint or from a you know, um, uh, mainstream cultural standpoint and then what you're offering as a different way of viewing the physical? Yes, well, let me put it this way. Um, I have no a priori notion about what physical means. Mm-hmm. I just use the word physical to mean everything that is real. And I take that um, what is real, it, all, it is all made uh, of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. The standard notion of physical world, in a way, is a naive notion. And uh, it is based on a set of very narrow assumptions about what the physical world is. Uh, Let me point out three assumptions that are not necessarily true and that oversimplify our understanding of the nature of the physical world and uh, our relation with it. First one is the notion of what I call the absolute object. Mm-hmm. The idea that an object has absolute properties. That means properties that don't depend on anything else. That's a naive idea. 
I will show you, I will explain you why it's wrong. The second wrong assumption is the idea that we are separate from the object. And therefore, if we are different and separate from the object, we have to explain how is it possible that we reach something different from what we are, whatever we are. And third, we take space and time to be made of points. Mm -hmm. So we have this point-like notion of the now. Mm -hmm. But I will leave, I, I, I will skip this last uh, uh, assumption. Let's focus on the two assumptions that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. First, that the object has absolute properties. This is false. This is false in physics. Because in physics, we know that all properties are like velocity. Velocity is relative. The fact that velocity is relative means that the velocity of an object depends on the object relative to which we uh, consider velocity. And it also means, and this is extremely important, this is a key uh, fact, that an object at the, at the same time, at any given time, has <coughs> multiple velocities. If an object has multiple velocities, it means that it may w also have uh, multiple uh, properties. It may, for example, have multiple colors, multiple sizes, mm -hmm. multiple shapes. In other words, it, where, we take, where we, we take there is just one object, there are multiple relative objects. So this notion that there is just one reality and that we experience the reality in different ways is wrong. It is the other way around. There are multiple realities, relative realities, and we do not experience them in a different way from what they are. We experience each of them just as it is. So right now here, the, the tradition, we are in a room. So traditional notion, there are three people in this room. And the traditional notion from naive physicalism is that here there is one room and there are three different experiences of the same room. Right. We can have a completely different picture. We can have three rooms, different, and these three rooms are one and the same with my experience, your experience, and the third person experience. So we all experience a different object because there are different objects to be experienced. If reality changes, if reality is multiple, is plural, then we no longer need to have a subjective experience of reality in order to explain the fact that we experience the world differently. We experience the world differently because the world is different for each of us, because there are different worlds. Mm -hmm. So this is an important point. Mm. <clears throat> the other aspect I was referring to was the problem of the separation between the object and the subject. We immediately assume that we are sep different from the object. And if I am different from the object, then I have to explain how is it possible that I reach the object. And to this process of reaching the object, the philosophical and uh, 
scientific tradition has given many names, mm -hmm. intentionality, representation, relation, and so forth. But why do we have to start from the idea that we are different from the object? What if the thing that we are is the object? Once again, the reason why we uh, historically wanted to be different from the object is what we, I, I was describing before, namely the fact that the object seems to be different for each of us. So we need to have, in, traditionally, a separation between an object that is uh, um, taken to be absolute and aloof, ontologically aloof, <laughs> and divided by us. But what if the world is multiple, is plural? What if there are three cups on the, on the table rather than one? And this is crucial because if we admit, a, I call it a relative physical world where multiple versions of the same world, of the same room, of the same cup, of the same object are taking place at the same time, at any given time, we will be able to find in the external world everything we've been looking for in an allegedly inner domain. So is the implication then that we're not, the three of us are not in the same room? Exactly. Okay. We are in the same place, but not in the same room. Okay. So what if, if reality is multiple and each locus of consciousness as, or awareness or perception is representative of a different reality, what is it that holds together all of those realities? What mediates the connection or the relationship between those realities? Let's consider again the analogy with velocity. In middle age, the notion of relative velocity was unknown. People, take, people took velocity to be an absolute property. When Galileo introduced the notion of relative velocity, people said just what you, you just said. They, they said, how could we cope with the world in which everything may have multiple velocity? Mm -hmm. We will be unable to put them together, I mean, because everything seems to be just different from everything else. But we know that that doesn't happen because the, um, the, the, the mesh of relative velocity is consistent. So today we are perfectly able to send a spaceship to Saturn or to Jupiter, even if all velocities are relative. Because what it matters when you move something is its velocity relative to something else. Likewise, when we consider these multiple worlds, that's not a problem because they're always they're relative, but they always take place at the right, at the right moment relative to the right body. Mm. So everything uh, fits. Mm. Mm. Okay. So um, it's consistent. It's consistent. So you mentioned, since you mentioned Galileo, I, I thought it was um, uh, interesting in the, in the conversation that you had with Deepak Chopra that you, were me you uh, said something about Galileo um, being wrong or, or, or something was problematic about, <clears throat> about his contribution. So do you want to kind of unpack, related to what we're talking about, how, how Gal Galileo was off and what you're saying alternatively? Right. Galileo made two important steps. Uh, one step was introducing the scientific uh, method. And that was just a method, that was a tool in a way, 
a very powerful tool. But at the same time, Galileo made an uh, unsupported claim, namely that reality is split in two halves. On one side, we have um, quantitative, objective, absolute properties. On the other side, we have subjective, qualitative um, properties. Right. And he said that the second group of properties do not exist in the external world. They exist somewhere else. Where? Galileo was a little bit vague about where they do exist. <laughs> he said that he didn't know a lot about that. Mm -hmm. But he said they are probably in the, inside the living body. He used the Italian word animal vivente, mm. which is more or less the living body. So apparently he's not yet uh, a full-fledged dualist. He's not talking about an immaterial mind like Descartes did 10 years later. Because Galileo wrote this uh, claim in 1632 in the Essayer. The point is that people at that time were beginning to look inside the living body. They were beginning to do, to vivisect animals and to look what's going on inside the body. And they were not able to find anything like Galileo has predicted. So they decided to uh, move such qualities into a metaphysical invisible domain, the soul or the immaterial mind, the Cartesian immaterial mind where they could not be ascertained by scientific method. But this claim that Galileo did was totally unsupported by, and it was in a way positive for the future development of science, because it was a big simplification of what you have to study. Because basically you were saying we just study a certain set of properties. Ironically, Galileo was also the guy that had the insight about relative velocity. So he's a very complex uh, yeah. scholar, I mean, Galileo, because yeah. he's making one step forward and one step backward, mm. in a way. Mm. So then what is the role of, because I understand what you're saying, is that the thoughts and the precepts that we would typically associate with something that's happening internally or subjectively is not separate, if, this is why, if I understand you correctly, from the physical object. So what are the role of thoughts and precepts then in this kind of understanding? Mm, what do you mean by like, thoughts? Well, are the thoughts inside? Like you, you, one of the things that you mentioned is that you know, we have this kind of brain-centric um, right. uh, 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 model that's sort of you know, very pervasive where, where the thoughts are something that sort of are emanating from the brain and you, and you say no in a sense. So what are the status of thoughts when the brain is no longer central? Exactly. Well, um, thoughts or thinking are a very interesting uh, aspect of our life. And they are in a way different from perceptions. Do we really have an experience of thoughts? Or do we need to, for example, to say something to know what we have been thinking? There's a famous quote by Foster, the novelist, who said something to the effect that, uh, how could I know what I think if I don't say it? And uh, if we think about what's going on when we think, we will find out that most of our um, process of thoughts seem to be unconscious. They are surprisingly unconscious. 
For example, Nietzsche was famous to claim that uh, I don't think what I'm going to think, or something to that effect. And if, if we consider that, it is, um, th there's a grain of truth. Think also about creative processes. They're usually unconscious. We don't have an experience. Usually then we are working on some problem, then we go around, we take a run, we take a shower, and then all of a sudden we have a new thought. Mm -hmm. So what do we experience when we have thoughts? There are two possibilities here. One possibility is that we sometimes we just experience um, words. So we call thoughts the fact that we are used to uh, use words. Mm -hmm. And so there's a strong relation between words and thinking. The other possibility is that thoughts are a way of extended perception. And that when we perceive thoughts, we perceive something that belongs to the world. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that if we look at what we experience when we, for example, think of, um, say, New York, is New York. So, in the end, thoughts, too, are nothing but a way to reach the external world. We never think about a pure thought. We never think about thinking. We always think of something else. Mm. I think of uh, my children, I think of my place, I think of my car. I think of, so thoughts may be a way, a different way to perceive the external world, but in the end they lead, they bring us to the external world too. Mm. Okay, so you, you've been using this word experience a lot, but I remember when you, when we, uh, also in the conversation with Deepak, that you took issue with the word or the concept of experience. Mm. Um, and so, I guess, could you elaborate on what that means? And then, and then also, maybe you could describe, if we throw out that concept, what do we put in its place? This is a question that I like very much, because it is one of the key points. Um, experience, as a notion, is always experience of, like awareness, mm -hmm. is always awareness of. Yeah. Uh, so there are words that imply the separation between us and the external world. So I use the word experience only to refer to the fact that we are something when we are alive, when we deal with the world. I see you, I see this room, I see this table, and I have to explain this fact. So, when I use the word my experience, I just refer to a cultural co context in which we have to explain our existence in the world. Mm -hmm. And now I'm getting to the point. To explain what is experience, we need to explain experience in terms of something that does not require a subject, that does not require the of, in a way. Mm -hmm. It is just it is not that we have to explain experience in uh, a way that it is not a transitive notion. Mm -hmm. And my proposal is that to exper the experience of a cup is for that cup to exist. So I would like to substitute the notion of experience with the notion of existence. Mm -hmm. So 
what does it mean in my mode, in my view, to experience an object? It is nothing but to be that object. So existence in this relative existence, the relative notion of existence I referred to at the beginning, is a substitute, is an explanation of the notion of having an experience of something. Mm -hmm. So rather than having to reach the external object, I am the external object. Mm -hmm. After all, for uh, example, if one was an idealist, and I am not, if uh, one was an idealist and I'm not, once you have an idea, you don't have an idea of an idea. Mm -hmm. You just are the idea. So you don't need anything else. Likewise, if the thing I am made of is an object, once I am made of an object, I don't need to have an experience of that object. I don't need to have something additional with respect to that object. Mm -hmm. And how would that change the way, like, say I'm, I'm looking back or I'm reflecting upon what previously I would call an experience, how would that shift the way that I articulate that or, or speak about that? I mean, what changes in kind of the discursive articulation of something if we throw out the, cate- the concept of experience? <clears throat> well, let me put it this way. When you speak with me about the world, your usual um, idea is that somehow your experience of the world, which is the outcome of the external world, is articulated by your mind and it produces a flow of words. What if we could just skip this intermediate step? What if your body is just a proxy of a world of things that are producing effects in your body right now? So it is the world that articulates itself through your body. Your body is a proxy through which a world of things rather than a world of pure experience Mm is acting true. So, uh, one of the points of my proposal is that the body is not what we are. It is just a proxy. We are something else, but not something that is inside the body. It's something that it is all around our body and that through our learning, development, interaction with the world becomes able to produce effects through our body. So when you speak to me, when I speak to you, what is that producing what I do? It is the world that is in my past, in the past of my body. It is what I've seen in Italy, the people I spoke with in Italy, it is what I've seen, which is a world of objects after all. So I'm just suggesting to skip the intermediate step of... So there's no Ricardo in that framework? Ricardo is that framework. Mm. The thing that is identical with Ricardo is that framework, which is not nothing, which is something. It is a world, a a world of real things. Mm. Okay. So we're here with Ricardo Manzotti. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Correct. Oh, good. Who's very the good, author? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, Ricardo with double C. Yes, and I wrote it down with two C's. I'll have <laughs> everyone know exactly. who's listening who can't see. <laughs> He's the author of The Spread Mind, Where and Why Experience and the World Are One. And, um, and so we've talked a lot about um, 
uh, you know, experience and how this is and how this is sort of different from other uh, accounts of the physics. But I want to take that that question that I just asked you about, you know, what changes about the way that we speak a little bit further, and and ask just another question about the implications of this theory from an embodied perspective. I mean, I sort of understand, you know, it's about the different kind of aesthetic that it produces in my own way of understanding all of this, but how does this change my lived relationship to the world, if, if at all? I think it makes a very profound change in the way we interact with other people and with the world in general. Because the traditional notion that we are an immaterial mind going around inside a body and interacting with the world, it is a view that I would call it a um, um, masturbatory view mm. of the mind. Because the, in, according to such a view, traditional view, the whole point of the world is to masturbate my brain in order to allow my brain to produce that image, internal image of the world. Yeah. But as long as we're able to produce the same internal image by other means, drugs or um, computers or uh, other tools, for the subject there will be no difference. Because for the subject the only thing that matter is such internal uh, production of yeah. images. Yeah. According to my view, this is not possible. And in order to have an experience of the world, we need to be the world we have an experience of. We need to be one and the same. And it also uh, opens the prison of the body, the prison of, of, of the mind. And it allows to what our mind is made of, to be made of real stuff, to be made of objects. So I found very relaxing and very um, reassuring the fact that I'm not inside this thing but that everything I see is real. Everything I see is just what it looks to be. Mm -hmm. So it is an extremely form of realism mm -hmm. and it gives a lot of substance to our uh, life. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I may add another thing, it also changes from a social perspective our attitude towards the world, the ecology, and the other people. Why? Because if I take to be uh, a mind, an immaterial mind inside the body, or somehow related with the body, I could not care about the others, as long as I, I am safe. But if I am really made of the external world, then I need to take care of the world. Because the external world, it's me, in a very metaphysically strong sense. So it paves the way to a sort of ecological, uh, sort of um, altruism, ontological altruism. Because in order to uh, take care of myself, I would need to take care of the world I am made of. So this shift in the center, in the ontological center of the self, in my understanding, might have strong influence, strong consequences on the way in which we conceive of our relation with the world. Mm. Mm. Have you seen the movie Her? Yes. What do you think? Okay, so I, I, I had some immediate kind of um, 
um, I don't know, a part of me felt uh, that it was problematic from a scientific perspective, like the idea that that consciousness, you know, just to rehash the plot for those that are listening that don't know, it's a computer-generated program that this guy falls in love with, and then her, she's been created and she's conscious, and her consciousness expands so much that all of a sudden she's no longer in the world, and she actually has to leave the world. And it seems like from what you're describing, and you know, the function of consciousness, you know, physical consciousness, as we, as, as if, if we can call it that, that that wouldn't make sense, right? Because to, for consciousness to transcend the world would be to go, uh, for it to be above the world, to expand so much that it is no longer in the world would be to um, leave the world behind and would be right. in, 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 in contrast to what I think you're describing. Can you maybe articulate that better than I can? <laughs> Computer scientists, in a way, are all Platonists in disguise. Yes, yeah. They love the idea that our a mental process that our mental life is nothing but, guess what, computation. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what they do all the time. <laughs> and they like computation, like Plato like transcendental ideas, because they're clean. Mm-hmm. They are functional equations, they are just numbers, they are bits. They are without blood and without flesh, in a way. And uh, so, there are many different um, uh, versions of this myth that the mind is nothing but basically numbers that can transcend everyday life, everyday which is related with decay, which is related with entropy, which is related with death in the end. So I take all these efforts, all this version of this, uh, I call it of Plato's notion of a transcendental world as many ways to flee from death and from death and change in a way. Mm. Mm. Oh, God, I'm so glad you described it that way, because I, I was trying, I've been trying for a long time to figure out what it was that was problematic about that, and you described it so well, so thank you. So now, you know, as we're kind of wrapping things up, um, I would love to just ask a little bit about your own story and what brought you to physics. Did you have kind of a, an existential moment in your life where you felt f- called to explore this, or what was it about? Well, uh, as a background, I'm an electronic engineer. Okay. And uh, I've been uh, I took a PhD in robotics. Okay. And I worked for the best part of my. So cap- you should be a computational kind of mind, right? <laughs> but I got better. <laughs> I healed. <laughs> and uh, exactly. And I was working on um, artificial vision for many years. Mm. I devised and implemented many different uh, artificial vision system. And I was obsessed with a question: What does a machine lack? Yeah. Uh, for being conscious. So if you take your cell phone nowadays, is able to take beautiful pictures, is able to process the information, is able even to recognize you in order to unlock the phone. But nobody thinks that uh, your phone sees you. So what, what's not there? What is missing? And I had this problem for... I, I kept asking myself this question. And after a while, I, I more or less got to the conclusion that no matter how much number crunching we were putting into our robots or machine, that was not the way to yeah. get consciousness, to squeeze consciousness out, out of, of them. bits. <laughs> and uh, therefore, I, I started to shift towards, uh, let's say, more broader approaches. So I, I went from robotics to psychology, 
and then from psychology to uh, per perception, and then to philosophy. Mm -hmm. But it was just a way to achieve the broader understanding of a problem that I think is rooted into our worldview of reality. What I was referring to before, namely having a too narrow or too naive notion of the physical world. And basically I proceeded by setting aside all the solutions that don't work. The, the thing that remained there, like Sherlock Holmes was famous, was, famous, was uh, like to say, was I think the only thing that could work, that might work. Mm. Mm. Do you think that we'll succeed or um, scientists will succeed in creating conscious robots? And if so, how will that come about? I don't see any reason why it should not be able to do so. Mm -hmm. Because uh, um, a robot is a body, and we have a body too. Yeah. And uh, as long as the body, an artificial body, would be able to bring into existence the same external world that we are able to bring into existence, I don't see why an artificial body should not play the same role that our body does. Mm. As long as it has the same kind of coupling with the external reality, which is not the case with current robots that are mostly based on computational um, models of, of uh, mental activity. And also try, uh, make, uh, based on assumptions of how the brain produces or so-called produces mental activity, right? Do you think that's part of the reason why they're so, so far not failing? Is be, it failing is because they're not, they're not being built in what you're describing, which is the relationship between a body and an object. Exactly. Uh, but rather they're trying to base it on the idea that things need to be sort of in a computer and it's not about the relationship, it's about sort of like the house of the mind or something. Exactly, exactly. Most uh, um, currently available um, cognitive models are based on um, the notion of representations. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you have, we have to develop the best representation possible inside the computer. Yeah. And um, the notion of representation, of course, is, is a dualistic notion based on the idea that there's a world and an internal representation. And we have all bamboozled by movies like The Matrix, yes. for example, in yeah. which we see that there are these beautiful green characters falling down from, uh, uh, from, from the top, and then all of a sudden they become colors uh, cars, buildings, uh, the, the woman with the red dress, and nobody explained how is that possible. But that's a myth. We have no examples of uh, uh, cases in which a brain in a vat has produced an experience of a color. Nobody has ever been able to um, induce the experience of a color in a congenitally blind subject just by stimulating the brain. If you stimulate the brain of a congenitally blind subject, the, the subject will report to have uh, hallucinations about touch, sounds, uh, tastes, but no colors mm. at all. In order to have an experience of a color, we, you need to have an actual encounter between your body and an external property that we call color. Um, 
consider also no, I forgot what it was. Sorry. That's all right. It's, it's, it's good. No, yeah, it's probably setting in quite hard. Quite hard. So, uh, well, this has been a great conversation. You know, is there anything else, you know, based on what we've discussed or based on your work that you kind of want to share? Actually, I do have a, a final question, which is, um, and we'll ask that question again in a second, but um, is there, I'm always interested to hear kind of what m the people I interview think is kind of the most pervasive myth and in your case it would be you know maybe a myth of, of science or a myth of, of physics that you think is doing the most harm to our own you know relationships or our own relationship with each other and the earth so to, in, from your perspective what is the most kind of unfortunate or problematic myth that we're working with well the split between the subject and the object that's definitely a big issue yeah because it paves the way to all kind of um, opportunistic and uh, selfish behaviors, because we are split. Yeah. So from a rational perspective, once I am separate from the external reality, who cares for the external reality? The thing that matters rationally, it's me, and I'm not the external world. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a big issue. The notion also that the mind is internal to the body, it's bad because it gives a lot of importance to the body and also the idea that we are one and the same with our body that's very problematic because we keep uh, putting a lot of effort to um, maintaining and to, to, to deal with, the, with our body while we should rather focus on ourselves mm -hmm. which of course the body has a role in making ourselves well and happy, but it's not the same. So we should shift that. So also identifying ourselves with our own bodies, that's very bad things to do. Mm -hmm. So is there anything like perception after death in this model? Like, I, I take it if, 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 if experience, you know, I, I shouldn't use that word, but if whatever this is, existence, is contingent upon having a body, then the implication is I don't have a body, I don't have existence. So then the status of something like the soul would not be operative. Well, let me put it this way. The body has an important role. The body acts like a dam. Let me make this oh, analogy yes. that I like very much. <laughs> uh, if you have a certain valley, a certain landscape, a certain terrain, and you build a dam, if there's enough rain, you get a lake. But, of course, if there were no rain, you may build a one-mile-high dam, and no lake is going to, 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 to take place. It's not going to be there. So the dam is necessary for the existence of the lake, but the lake is not literally created by the dam. Neither the lake is the dam, of course. It would be crazy to look for water inside the bricks of the dam. The dam is just a condition for the existence of the lake. But the lake is something else. The body is just like the dam. It's the condition that allow, allows a world of things to exist in a certain way. It is literally as though there's a flow of previous events that are stopped right now by my body and they exert a pressure like the lake this pressure i would dare to say is my will mm. is what i 
would like to do at any time. I feel a pressure of doing something. And I take that to be very uh, alike to the pressure that the lake exerts on the dam. But of course, if you destroy the lake, uh, sorry, if you destroy the dam, the lake would disappear, mm-hmm. but not the water. Yeah. So I, I left it open. What would it happen when the dam mm-hmm. uh, collapses mm-hmm. at the end of its life? Mm-hmm. Would the person disappear or in a way it would get back to the original state of being distributed like water yeah. everywhere? I don't know enough to say anything about that, but... But that's a beautiful thing to kind of meditate on. It's a beautiful metaphor. I don't think I've ever heard that metaphor before you were... In, and we were... I had it written down. I really wanted to, to talk about it, so I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> so um, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank uh, Ricardo, thank you so much for spending time. Well, there is one, one more thing yes, that please. you mentioned at the beginning that I would like to mention before going away. Um, in a way... Um, there's a social aspect um, related with this notion of the absolute object, which is also related with our own personal and private life. Once science put forward the notion of the absolute object, science also um, decided to, uh, how can I say in English, to, to hold the right something like that, yeah. he, uh, the, authority. the authority of saying what that object is like. So science started to say what the world is really like. Mm-hmm. And because of that, because of the authority of science, the experience of everyone was downgraded to subjective individual experience. Yeah. And we all felt powerless in front of science, because science is the only authority that has the right to say what temperature is really like, what uh, color is really like. And if I don't see what science predicts that I should see, then I have an illusion, then I am mistaken, then I have a perceptual error. The blame always, uh, the blame is always on the side of the individual. Science, as a group, has the right to tell everyone what the world is really like. Mm. If my theory is correct, if my view is correct, we are going to upturn the table and we are going to give back to everyone the right to say the world I live in is not my subjective private world, but it is a world as true and as real as the world that for their own reason, a group of scientists may say that they like to take into consideration. They may have their own good reason to say that they like temperature to be a certain average speed of the molecules, but if I feel cold here, there's a strong sense in which here the world is really cold. So this, in a way, I like the fact that this theory brings back the authority from science as a group of uh, people to the individuals as a society to the individuals that live in a real world. Right, because it empowers people to kind of affirm their relationship with reality. Exactly, exactly. Excellent. I think it's important. It is important. I think you're right. All right, thank you, Ricardo. So if anybody's interested, obviously they can look for your book, The Spread Mind, Where and Why Experiences, Experience and the World Are One. 
Um, but how can people otherwise get into contact with you? Do you have any website? Yes, I have a website which is www.consciousness.it. Consciousness.it. IT. How'd you get that? Uh, that uh, address. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody had. <laughs> Nobody had it before exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, do you have anything coming up? And if I may say, you can also look for me on Facebook. Okay, excellent. People I'm can reach out to you. Happy about there. that. Yes, awesome. I'm happy to. And is there any uh, anything that you're participating in? Any any workshops? Obviously, you're here at Sand, and probably will be in future years, so people can look for you at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. But is there anything else you're participating in coming up that people could look for you at? Well, I usually go to the main conferences, and I, especially in Italy, I always do public talk, oh, nice. but mostly in Italy. <laughs> mostly in Italy. Well, if anybody's traveling to Italy, look up Ricardo. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Ricardo. Thank you.